Season 2, Episode 2. This is the Bird Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host in the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. This week's guest is an ornithologist, author, 2021 Bird Life South Africa Gill Memorial Award winner, and a personal hero of mine. I am honored to introduce David Allen. This is a brilliant episode where we get to hear from one of the country's leading voices in ornithology. He tells us all about his career, the books he has been a part of, as well as sharing many fascinating accounts from the field. This is definitely an episode that you do not want to miss. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser Bird Logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. So David, it's good to have you on the podcast. I've wanted to have you for a long time, but I'm really glad that we've got to chat to you this time because you've just recently retired as the curator of birds at the Durban Natural Science Museum. So welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. Thank you very much, Adam. Nice to be here. Nice to chat about birds. Yeah. So let's go right back to the beginning. You know, you obviously, you, you, you're in birds as a career or you were in birds as a career. So how did this love for birds start? It goes back to childhood, and I think it probably stems from the fact that I was born in Kenya, East Africa, uh, in a family. My parents were interested in wildlife, so every weekend we were taken off to the local game reserve, Nairobi Game Reserve, uh, Savo National Park. So a lot of time, I think, my parents are not interested in wildlife as such. They certainly didn't work in that field, but there wasn't a great deal else to do in sort of East Africa at that time for entertainment. So we spent a lot of time in game reserves. And I think that rubbed off onto me. By the time we came to South Africa, when I was nine years old, we moved to Johannesburg. So suddenly in a big city where it wasn't possible to see that wildlife. Uh, but I still interested. We went on a trip to Zimbabwe, a holiday. And we went up to Wanky, Wange. Uh, spent a bit of time looking at wildlife there. Um, so that kept that interest going. And then as I became more independent and I got a bicycle and I was able to, after school weekends, go out riding, there wasn't big game to find, but there were birds. So suddenly I realized that oh, my interest in natural history could be expressed through searching for birds um, from not being able to find big game. So that's where I kind of trace it all the way back to. And then my interest started with raptors and from raptors into other kinds of birds. So that's kind of the progression that took place for me. What, what would be your earliest uh, memory as a bird? Do you have any like memories that stick out when you were younger, seeing, seeing any special birds, especially back in Kenya, because Kenya is a fantastic place to grow up. It is, but I don't have a lot of memories of early childhood, especially not bird. I remember all the big mammals. I think I can remember riding my bicycle near the Michalisberg and coming over the crest of a hill and having a yellow, what I now know was a yellow-billed kite soaring very low over me. 
that I misidentified as a tawny eagle at the time. Only later on did I realize it was much more likely to have been a yellow-billed kite. But that's my sort of earliest bird memory. What do you think it was raptors that grabbed you? You know, you said it was early on those raptors grabbed you. What, what was it about raptors that was so fascinating? What, it, what turned me on to raptors was reading Peter Stain's book, Eagle Days. Um, there's a magic to that book that I still resonates with me. I have that book at home, and whenever I pick it up and start reading through the text of his Peter Stain's adventures with eagles in Zimbabwe in those early days, it just comes through the, the, the magic of these birds and his exploration of them that captured my imagination and sent me off on my bicycle searching for birds of prey north of Johannesburg as a young schoolboy. So you spoke about Peter Stein. Now, what were other influences, people that influenced you, people that you look up to as, as an ornithologist or as a birder? Yeah, well, I, in my final year at school, I got a job at the Wildlife Society shop in Johannesburg. I think it was in Linden at that time. And I met Kit Hustler there. Kit was about a year older than me. Um, he was just starting varsity, and he'd been to Queen's College down in the Eastern Cape and had knowledge of birds of prey through the falconry group there. So suddenly from having this kind of interest in birds of prey but no door to open it for me, it had been fired up by Peter Stain's book, suddenly I met a guy of my own age that had experience working with real raptors. He knew how to identify them, he knew how to find them, and he invited me along to look at Wahlberg's eagles on a project that he was getting going with Warwick Tarbiton. Um, and in that way, I met Warwick Tarbiton up at Nailsflay. Um, and got, we started on the Wahlberg's eagle project. And that got me then started on the birds of prey thing. So what is really interesting when I was doing a bit of research into you, I was really fascinated to discover that when you left school, you didn't, you didn't first go into a nature field. The first thing you started studying was law. And I don't know how you would have been as a lawyer. It would have been quite different. So how did the path look like from being a law student to becoming one of South Africa's best-known ornithologists? Yeah, my, my, my great weakness was a lack of um, mathematical uh, nous. I'm not good with mathematics. Um, and so physics and chemistry also were very difficult for me. And those are the traditional routes through to the BSc that you really need to take on the traditional course to get into zoology. I was really qualified to do a BA at university. And in that route was uh, to do law. Law seemed to me to be the most challenge, the best challenge in the BA subjects. Um, at this time, birding was just very much a sideline for me that I was still trying to find my way in, but certainly no idea of making a career of it. Um, so started with law, did one year of law, um, the interaction, the relationship I had with Warwick Tarbiton, meeting him up at Nelsplay, he said to me, look, I was going up there on the weekends to look at Wahlberg's eagles. And he said to me, look, this is crazy for you to be come up here to, to look at Wahlberg's eagles. Why don't you look at the excipitors north of Johannesburg, that area just south of the Michalisburg between, between Joburg and and, and the Michalisburg. Why don't you look at the exhibitors there of Vumbo sparrowhawks, little sparrowhawks, and black sparrowhawks? So I shifted my attention to that, and I was spending a lot of time uh, out looking at exhibitors in that, in that area. I did my first year of law, and then suddenly Warwick had a, a possibility for employment for a year as a nature conservation officer, the lowest of the low rank. I remember my salary was 230 rand a month. It seemed a fortune at the time. 
um, to work on his bird of prey survey that he was getting going in the old Transvaal province. So I dropped, I did my first year of law, and then I worked for the Division of Nature Conservation for a year as Warwick's assistant. And then at the end of that year, went back to Varsity to finish my law degree, took another two years to get the BA law. At the end of that, I was then going to do articles and study law part-time to get the LLB. And then I kind of realized that the practice of law is not nearly as fascinating as the study of law. A lot of divorce work and debt collecting stuff. So just again, by, by good fortune, a post came up at TPA again um, in nature conservation, working on birds again, wetland birds and a pan-ecology survey. So I took that up. And because I had a degree, I was able to get a slightly better job. Started doing that. A few months into that, was fortunate enough to meet Professor Hugh Patterson at a bird conference where I presented some of the results of the exhibitor work we'd been doing with the sparrowhawks north of Joburg. And he said to me, if you want to get into birds professionally, which you might want to do with your interests this strong, you need to do honours in BSc. And he said, I'll accept you. You've got a BA degree, so I'll accept you for BSc honours, but do it part-time at WITS over two years catch up on all the stuff you don't know from the BSc side, and maybe you can launch a, a, a career in science. So that was a pretty intensive two years. I was working full-time for nature conservation at that stage, riding a motorcycle in and out of Joburg to go to lectures and practicals and stuff from where I was based in Amersfoort. And at the end of those two years, I did get the, the BSc honors, and that launched me, essentially made me eligible to then become a, take the route to become an ornithologist. I think what I'm quite interested to know is, you know, obviously the fact that you studied law, there's certain things that you learn when you study law. Do you feel that what you learned in law in some way has maybe influenced how you approach your study of birds? I'd like to think so, yes. You know, law is a demanding subject. You have to soak up a great deal of information, a case law and stuff. There's a lot of studying in law. It is very book heavy. It's very scholarly as is the study of birds. You also need to learn a lot about what's already in the literature. So in, in science, you're studying in the literature. In law, you're also studying a separate kind of literature. And then you have to bring logic to what you're doing. You have to synthesize all that information to realize what's really going on in, in both spheres of both science and law. Um, so yes, I, the good thing about law is it doesn't involve as much numerical work as the science does, but there is also a lot of concept work in science as well. You don't have to be shackled by numbers in everything you do. I think what I'm quite interested in, you've spoken about the surveys you did and the studies you did of different, different birds. You know, I know it, it would be different for different species and depending on the study you're doing but what what would that look like you know when you say that you're doing a survey you're doing a study of birds and you spoke about the work that you did what what does that look like in a practical way well a lot of the bird of prey work was surveys of their conservation status so you want to get some idea of what is out there so i mean a lot of the work involved looking at one in fifty thousand maps in those days delineating an area that you felt you were able to search and then get out on a vehicle and on foot and then search the, the habitats to find the breeding pairs of birds. So with the exhibitors around north of Johannesburg, they nest in these poplar plantations largely. So you identify the poplar plantations and then you search them, every single tree and every single poplar plantation and find every single active nest. Um, sometimes with cliff nesting raptors, 
You do the same with cliffs. You go into those areas. You can look at the topography from the maps, estimate, get a good idea where the cliffs are, then put telescopes up and search the cliffs heavily, find all the nests, find all the breeding pairs on the cliffs. An ornithologist is a lot more than just someone who who does birding the whole day. There's there's other things that you do besides that kind of thing. You know, what does a day in the life look like? If you, someone, someone's listening says, sure, I'd love to be an ornithologist. Are they just going to look at birds the whole day or is there a lot of other stuff that they're going to do that maybe isn't as exciting? Yeah, it, it, there are so many different spheres of ornithology. You know, if you're working in wetlands, you might be sampling water. You're doing counts of water birds on the wetland. Um, you may be searching for nests there in wetland situations, heronries, that kind of thing. So that's quite different to working with raptors. Um, people that are studying birds using ringing have put up mist nets, and then you're catching the birds, measuring the morphometrics of them, weighing the birds gathering all that information. And then a lot of time is spent, unfortunately, in the unglamorous side of sitting at your desk, analyzing information. Unfortunately, the ratio for amount of time at the desk as a result of time in the field is 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 more frightening than you'd imagine. For each day in the field, you often need two or three days of data analysis and writing up. So you spend more time trapped at your desk. The more field work you do, the more time you're going to be spending at your desk, analyzing and writing up. So you've spoken a lot about the study, you have to use books and that kind of thing. So I know you, we're going to chat a little bit just now about some of the books you've been involved in. But besides the books you've written, which are fantastic, and the books you've been involved in, what are some of your favorite books that are on your library? We know just before we came here, you've got a fantastic library. So what are some books that are at the top of your pile that you just think are awesome? Well, uh, you know, I think the Robert Seven was a fantastic achievement that huge book that synthesized all the information that we knew about the birds in up to 2005. So time for an upgrade on that again. That That's a tremendous achievement. There's a tremendous amount of detail there. I probably go to that book more than I go to any other book. Um, just everything you want to know about the birds. is, And often you, the detail, there's too much detail for it to be in the book, but you'll find the references that give you even more detail. So you can go and dig up more information. So I think that's probably the most important book I have on my shelves. The Handbook of the Birds of the World series is also a fantastic series. You know, the long chapters on each group at the beginning are also very, very good to read. And then the shorter, more pithy species accounts. So those are really a Birds of Africa series. Again, another series of handbooks. Those are a fantastic resource. So yeah, I like these big handbook types of birds. I, I really enjoy those. I can imagine after this episode, you know, a few people Googling and, you know, credit cards going through and spending a bit of money. So so let's take a look at a few moments in your journey. In 1987, you took up a position in Cape Town at the Fitzpatrick Institute for African Ornithology. What were some of the projects that you were involved in during your time at Fitz? Yeah, I was in Cape Town for nine years after I came down from the old Transvaal province. And actually, I spent uh, the first four years at the Fitz, and then I was five years at the Avian Demography Unit, later Animal Demography Unit. So I went down to Cape Town to do my master's on, on Ludwig's Bustard in the Karoo. And I was doing a lot of road transect work with Ludwig's Bustard. I also expanded that to look at what we call Stanley's Bustard, now Denim's Bustard. But while I was looking at Denim's Bustard on the south coast of the Cape, that Bredarsdorp area came across these big concentrations of blue cranes that had moved into that agricultural landscape. And at that stage, it wasn't appreciated 
just what an, how, what an population explosion had occurred of blue cranes at a time when they were disappearing from most of the high-felt areas of South Africa. So my, my master's degree actually changed tack halfway through from bustards to also include the blue cranes. And in the end, I only had two chapters in my master's on, blue crane, on, on bustards and about six chapters on the blue crane. So it was a bit of a change of tack. Um, but also while at the Fitz, yes, they keep you busy with other stuff. I remember we did a fantastic survey of red larks uh, with Phil Hockey, Richard Dean, and Ian Sinclair were all on that trip. Tony Rebello as well, who's now with Sandby. So that's a trip I'll never forget with people like that to go out in the field and to spend time in the pub is the kind of experience that you remember for the rest of your life. So that was great. Uh, Roy Siegfried also put me on a, a study of uh, the use of strychnine poison in the for avian scavengers. We got a nice paper out of that that is still cited today. Um, I also in the Western Cape got, when I moved to Cape Town, learned about pelagics, went on some pelagic trips, and also waders up in the Berg River estuary. Spent magic weekends up in the Berg River estuary learning about wetlands. So that was time at the Fitz, and then I went to the ADU to work on the SABAB project, SABAB 1. Did the field work for that, was also very much involved in the structure of the species accounts and the vetting of the data. And while I was at the ADU, we also got the IBA project started while I was there. Um, also, CAR started, which actually came out of the road counts that I was doing in the Southern Cape. And also, we started the NERCS project, the Nest Record Card Scheme, which has quietly slipped into oblivion. In the meanwhile, birders just don't look at birds' nests anymore. In fact, it's actually become discouraged. People actually feel guilty that they shouldn't be disturbing birds at nests. So yeah, those nine years in Cape Town were, were pretty formative for me um, in terms of the wide range of things that I was actually involved with. It was a fascinating time in my life um, and I really enjoyed it, yeah, benefited from it. And it's not a bad place to live. I mean, you've got the Fane the Boston that it's a fantastic place to, to be as a bird and not a lot, not as many species as KZN, but in terms of the the, there's a lot of special species there, so it's a fantastic place to live as a birder. Yeah, fantastic birding in the Fynbos and the coastal birds as well. There, you know, the, the the African penguins and African black oyster catchers and the fancy the cormorants and Damara terns, all those endemics there along the coast. Fantastic area to bird. So the next part of your life in 1996, you became the cur- curator of birds at the Durban Natural Science Museum, a position you held until you recently retired. So what does that role? What did that role look like? Yeah, you know, quite different. You know, so I started off in bird conservation um, up in the old Transvaal province, and then I went down to university, a purely academic environment. Now I came to a museum, which is sort of the third way, and you can make a living in, in professional ornithology, really. Um, and yeah, I had to look after a very big collection. We have one of the major African bird collections in the Durban Natural Science Museum due to the due to Philip Clancy, Dr. Philip Clancy, who mastered over sort of three decades gave us this fantastic collection which is very widely used by people so you have to you know look after that collection we had to get it all database when i arrived we were just starting with the databasing efforts i'd had a dbase initial stab at it but we had to build on that it's now become a web-based database system 
Um, and then also add to the collection. There was a continual stream of new material comes in. Didn't have to do any active collecting, um, which is not really something that's much people are doing much of in museums these days. But you get enough dead birds coming in from all other sources, members of the public, Ezinbelo in Wildlife, the airports company, the universities have got many projects that result in, 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 in bird carcasses coming into the museum. So then they've got, those have all got to be prepared and then added to the collection. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We really hope you are enjoying the episode. If you would like to support us and help grow the show, please, can we ask that you do two things? Firstly, please share the show on your favorite social media channel. Tell us why you enjoy the show and be sure to tag us in the post. This is one of the best ways to help get the word out about the podcast and bring more exposure to the guests that are featured and the conservation issues that are covered. Secondly, to help us cover the costs and to improve the quality of the show, please can you consider buying us a virtual coffee or two? This is a quick, safe and easy way to contribute to the show. You will find a link for this in the notes of the show. So one of the things that you were involved in were the monthly bird counts in the Durban Harbour. Now, I've been out with you on some of those. You are f- um, fantastic with waders. I mean, you just like from kilometers away, you, you like can just pick out what it is. And it's quite intimidating. I mean, you, it's always quite relieving when you ask us to count the easy birds. But, you know, you've been involved in it for many, many years. Um, what have been your observations over the years? You know, obviously, not just the birds you've seen, but what, what have you noticed as you've been a part of these? Because there must have been significant changes as developments have taken place with the harbour and that kind of thing. What have you noticed? Yeah. Well, just to, to let you know, a lot of the time I'm guessing as much as you are on those long-distance waders, but after many, many years of doing it, you kind of know what to expect. So often you can narrow it down to what it's most likely to be the ones that are at the greatest the, distance from you. All the secrets are coming out now that you've retired. <laughs> yeah. Who cares now? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, of course, you know, the first thing I did with the Durban Bay information was to do a historical review. Because the Bay, Durban Bay, is in the middle of a big city, there's a big historical record from the Bird Club records, essentially. And so I was able to see what had disappeared over the full length of time, so going back to the 1940s, 1950s. And so document things like the disappearance of flamingos from Durban Bay. Once they were there in their hundreds on a regular basis, now gone essentially a few vagrants for every couple of years. Same with black egret, first discovered breeding in Southern Africa in Durban Bay. It's been a long time since a black egret's been in Durban Bay, um, never mind breeding there. Um, so documented that. And then, of course, there's the counts we've kept going every month since 1999. So it's now 21, 22 years. Um, the only a monthly count, we've only ever missed one month about five years ago in December, December when we had a new uh, commander at the naval base who we used their vessel for the count and he wanted just more detail before he authorized it. And then over lockdown, we missed four months over lockdown. But we're back in business again. So we've got over a year's worth of counts again since lockdown, the harsh lockdown was lifted a year ago. And even there, you can see ongoing decreases, worrying decreases of species, particularly the paleotic waders, Curlew sandpipers historically occurred in the bay, numbers up to 10,000 in the bay. When we started the counts, we were only having three, four hundred. But even from three, four hundred, we're decreasing down to less than a hundred, typically in the midsummer count now. Um, and this is not really because of anything that's happening in Durban Bay in recent times, because not a lot's happened 
since the early damage that was done in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But these decreases of curlew sandpiper seem to be happening on all the wetlands across southern Africa, including some of the big national park ones like Langabon Lagoon. Um, they're disappearing there too at, at a frightening rate. It's a global decrease of a bird like this. So we're seeing it in Durban Bay. Durban Bay is one of the witness areas for these kinds of decreases. I think the scary thing about that is you were saying you've been doing this since 1999. I mean, I know you said it's quite a long time, but it's actually not that long a time. And the fact is, even in that short amount of time, you've already noticed a decrease. It just shows the urgency we have in terms of, of conserving birds. Exactly. Because extinction can happen right in front of your eyes. We've actually seen kitlets plover when we first started our counts 22 years ago get 30, 40, up to 70 birds. They were seasonal on the bay. They would come for a while and then they would go away. Typically, it was an early summer, late summer, early summer bird. Probably when they weren't breeding, they would come in. Now, we haven't seen kitlets plover for several years. They've gone locally extinct. Whatever population was coming down to Durban Bay to overwinter um, has gone extinct. And greater sand plover is another one that's disappeared from Durban Bay during the course of the years we've been coming. We would get you know, half a dozen birds at least in the early years. Now we don't get them at all. They've gone locally extinct. So another area that you've, done, you've been involved in is you've done more than 100 pelagic trips from Durban. I mean, that's insane. You've got sea legs like crazy. I know you could be on the flock next year. But what have been some of your highlights over the years? I know one of the recent ones, but what have been some of the highlights you've had over the years of being part of these pelagics from Durban? Well, you know, there's two places where you see you've got the highest chance of seeing rare birds. And that's going to a huge estuary with waders or going out to sea to look at pelagics. You've got about a 10 times more chance of seeing a national rarity in those two scenarios. So going offshore Durban on 100 pelagic trips, yeah, we've had some fantastic birds. Only one or two, you only see them once or twice, but when you get the 100 under your belt, you suddenly realize you've seen a whole long list of rarities. And we've had things like a sooty albatross, single bird, you know, which off Durban is pretty unusual. Um, wandering albatross we've had. Grey petrel, about two or three records, previously you know, virtually unknown for day, one-day base pelagic trips in, in, off the coast of South Africa to get grey petrel. Uh, White-faced storm petrel, you know, a bird that a lot of birders are desperate to see on the Southern African list. We've had it two or three times, actually. And then Barrow's petrel has been very special. Over the time I've been doing the pelagics, it's something a bird we've come to see very regularly. We now know September, October, November are the key months. These seem to be male birds that come off our coast for those three months in a part of their breeding cycle. The females go just south of Madagascar. They come a bit further towards Durban, and then both of them go back for the egg laying and incubation and chick rearing period. And then the very best bird we had was with Neil Perrins, who I've been doing, who I did pelagics with for, for many years latterly before I stopped going out. And um, we had a Tahiti petrel that came in, which was the first record for South, Southern Africa. There were unconfirmed records off Mozambique before that, but this was the first one we got good photographs of and, uh, and were able to confirm. So the Tahiti petrel is the highlight of all of them over those over 100 trips. I think that I think what amazes me, and there was two things. Let me say the first one. I was with you when we, we got one of the grey petrels, and, and Dave like literally gets out the boat and he runs across the front of the deck, and I'm like trying to walk around, and I'm nearly I thought I was going to fall off the side, and you're just running across quite calmly. But I'm interested that Tahiti petrel you saw. How the heck? I mean, I, I struggle to identify a flipping albatross when I see it on. on a, I mean, how how did you pick that bird out? 
Well, we had chum in the water, so we were attracting seabirds to it. So we had the chum, and then we watched to see what's coming in. And Neil picked up that something unusual was coming in. Now, this is a bird that's got white on the underparts. So any seabird you see of the tube noses that's, that's fairly small and white on the underparts is going to be something unusual. You know, typically all the common ones are, are plain brown. Um, so he saw it coming in and, and called out. I think he might have thought it was barrows at the first glimpse when he saw it. But as it came in clearer, we saw it was something else. And, and you, the first thing you think is Atlantic petrel. But then um, it did, wasn't right for that. And then there, there had been this, I think it's a Providence petrel that had been seen off the Eastern Cape. And we thought it might have been that. But we were just firing away, taking the photographs and then looking at the photographs, this very bull-like head and a huge powerful beak um, and then the pattern of white and, and, and pattern of dark under the underwings didn't fit any of the other options. So then we, by the time we got back to shore, we were pretty sure that it must be a Tahiti petrel. That's fantastic. So you've done all this, the, the bake, the, the bake, the counts in the harbor, and you've been on pelagics, and there's obviously a lot of data that comes in. So what do they do in terms of, how does that data get used in terms of the conservation of birds? If I can just add one more thing about, you, you just mentioned there about how did we know it was a Tahiti petrel? With really rare birds, you never know what it is straight away. Very tip the typical pattern is that if you do a lot of birding, look at all common birds all the time, never get sick of looking at common birds, because what happens is you see something that you know is unusual. And that's it doesn't fit in with what you know what you're familiar with. And that opens the door. You try and figure out what is this thing that I've never seen before that's different to anything I've seen before. And that's what opens the door to you realizing you're looking at something new. That's the process. You don't look at something, a new bird like that and think, oh, Tahiti petrel straight away. Often you've never even heard of Tahiti petrel. But the key thing is to know that it's different to all the other seabirds that you have been looking at over the years. Mm -hmm. You've got to have that deep familiarity. And that's why in pelagics, I always say to people, just keep looking at common birds. Never get sick of it. Just study them through your binos hour after hour after hour. Because when something unusual comes, you'll, you'll, you'll spot the difference if you're so familiar with the common birds. Yeah, but you come back to the, to the conservation story. Well, I wish in Durban Bay that I could say that we've had a lot of conservation impact. I've certainly tried to put across in, in scientific and popular publications the extent of these decreases in the water birds in Durban Bay and how we need to look after what natural habitat is left in Durban Bay given the huge amounts of damage that were done in the past. But I can't say that I get a very sympathetic and enthusiastic response from the Transnet, the Port Authority, ever. Essentially, there's a thundering silence from them. The only time one hears conservation words from them and, and interest is when there's some other big development process that is mooted. Then suddenly they're also trying to not only have the stick of that, but start dangling some carrots. So I'm a little jaundiced about the fact that, um, yeah, it doesn't often, doesn't necessarily always have good conservation outputs. But we do feed our information into all the EIAs that are done for projects in Durban Bay. So that's ongoing right at the moment. They're doing their, their expansion of two container birds that they are working on and they need to do dredging and repositioning of, of, of silt that they dredge up for that. And all the information from our bird counts is feeding into that process and has fed into previous processes. So the EIAs are covered that way. We spoke earlier about the fact you've been involved in many books over the years. So, you know, some of the 
the best known books like in, in Southern African birding. So out of all the books you've been involved in, what book would you say has been the biggest highlight for you? What book would stands out? You say, sure, out of all the books I've been a part of or I've written, that's the book that I'm the most proud of. It would have to be the two volume Sabab one, Southern African Bird Atlas volumes. And that, you know, took up a good five years of my life when I was working down at Cape Town. So yeah, involved in designing the species accounts for that, doing the vetting of the data, doing a huge chunk of the field work, um, helping to choose the authors who we use different authors for different species. Um, it's quite a major bit of work. And I'm very proud to have been involved with that with a huge team of, you know, there were seven, six other editors to that to that volume. And there were many, many contributors to it, the guys who wrote the species accounts, probably over a hundred different authors. So it was that was a great highlight. The other one that's been very, very nice at the museum was Hugh Chittenden involved me in the, uh, the book on subspecies, mm. geographical variation in Southern African birds. So Hugh um, and Ingrid Weyersby, the artist, and myself, we worked over a six-year period. They would come in once or twice a month, and we would go into the bird room, the three of us, and spend the whole day in there working on a particular group of birds. We slowly worked our way through all of them, getting all the skins out, looking at the variation, deciding whether it was worth illustrating for this field guide of geographical variation or not. And it was very much museum skin-based, and it was a fantastic link in with Philip Clancy's legacy with the museum. Yeah, having spent 30 years of his life amassing this collection, and he published a lot of the subspecies descriptions, but of course we, he never produced a book illustrating all of them in full color the way Ingrid was able to do for for this book. So that was a fantastic book to have come out as well. I'm a lot of hard work, many, many days spent, very fascinating work doing it. And I'm you know, very pleased with that product. So imagine behind the scenes, putting these books together, a lot of blood, sweat and tears, because I mean, there's huge, I mean, we're just trying to identify birds out in the field and you like literally have to study and describe these birds. I mean, I can't even imagine the work that goes in behind the scenes to put together these books. Yeah. And of course, the uh, you know, the field time, the time in the bird room looking at the skins is fascinating. When you're out in the field looking at the actual birds, that's also fascinating. But all this translates into long, lonely hours at your desk working at stuff. And that that is a lot more tedious in, in the process. And it kind of, I've seemed to have had to do more and more. I think as most ornithologists, as you get older, you, you tend to be more and more desk bound. So I'm looking forward to with retirement, hopefully not being quite as desk bound. Although strangely enough, the projects that I still want to go forward with in retirement are from people that do seem to want me to write things for them. So yeah, I will be at my desk and hopefully my study that I'm setting up will allow me to do that now that I don't have an office down at the museum anymore. I think over the years, um, I actually had a chat to a couple of people when I said I was interviewing you, and a lot of people don't necessarily know who you are. And I think you've had this tremendous impact in South African birding and ornithology and that type of thing. But you're one of those people that, you know, you don't put your name out there. And you know, there's a lot of guys out there who put their names out there. And, you know, I actually spoke about the fact that you've, even my own birding journey, you've had a tremendous, tremendous impact. And I think a lot of people don't know. I'm not, I don't even think people are aware of the impact you've had. I mean, just as you shared stories, it's been fascinating to hear some of the, things, the, the many things you've been involved in. But, you know, it's, out of all the projects you've been involved in over the years, out of all the studies as an ornithologist, as you look back at the career you've had, what would you say is that project that just stands out? You say, if out of all the projects I've been involved in, that is the one that I'm most proud of. Again, I think it would be the Sabab project. You know, that was a very defining one. 
um, at the museum. The years that I've lived here in Durban, I spent a lot of time in Lesotho, working specific, usually with environmental impact assessment work, opening the door there with the large dams in Lesotho. So I've done a lot of work at Katsi Dam and Mahali Dam and then a little bit of work at Polahali Dam, the latest dam, and other power line associated things as well in Lesotho, often also linked to the, to the development there. So many, many years spent in the highlands of Lesotho, especially with my colleague, Dr. Andrew Jenkins, down in Cape Town, another raptor fanatic. And those have been very special times. The Lesotho Highlands is a, a magical realm to work in. So those years in Lesotho are, are great highlights for me as well. And I'd like to translate that into some sort of book on focusing on the birds of the Lesotho Highlands. Hopefully I'll get time for that as well in the coming years. I think you need to write a book about your life. Do, do, actually, I think you need to do uh, an autobiography. It'll be a fascinating read to hear some of the stories about these trips you've been on. Oh, yeah. Well, they've all been fascinating. And it gets, you know, the world becomes somewhat um, smaller now than it was before. You know, when I was doing a lot of this fieldwork, it was from the time before there were cell phones. So one was out of contact of other human beings for weeks at a time, essentially. There were no such thing as bed and breakfast scattered all over the landscape. So you just carried all your camping gear in the back of a 4x4 vehicle. And at the end of every night, you just asked a local farmer. Or if there was no farmer, you just got off into the felt somewhere and just camped the night there got up the next morning and carried on with the birding work. You just don't seem to get that that ability to immerse yourself in nature to the exclusion of everything else in the modern world. You know, people have got their devices that are linking them to so many other things, but somehow that isolation that nature really allows you to focus on, on, on the natural world is so much harder to get these days. You touched on something there, which I think is quite fascinating. You know, with you being involved in birds and birding for many many years you know what changes have you noticed you know in terms of birding i mean i know one of the things you spoke about is technology i mean i know like we've got bird lasser i mean here the people used to do atlasing it was like getting big maps out your car it was crazy what changes have you seen over the years as someone who's been involved in in the in the world of birding yeah, um, straight up, I would say that the standard, standard of bird identification has become a lot higher than it used to be. I think with better communication, with good field guides, with a better communication between birders, because a lot of you learn a bird is not so much from good field guides as such or good apps, but from interactions with other birders. So good the, in, the communication the apps allows us helps a lot, but then the raw information as well, the Roberts on the on the on your on my iPhone, um, the the field guides, the Roberts field guide, the Sassel field guides, high standards. So birders identify birds much better than they used to in the old days. But certainly there has been a narrowing of focus on to twitching, looking for rare birds, and also atlasing as an end in itself. People just love doing bird atlasing, but it's almost as if birding has become quite compartmentalized. Um, one got the feeling that people had broader interests in the older times. They would do a little bit of everything, a little bit of water bird counting, a little bit of ringing, a little bit of attending this and do, looking for nests and a whole wide range of birding related activities. Whereas now it's more focused on twitching or at the sink and not much in between that. And I put it down to just the a, a more fast-paced world. People maybe have less spare time. 
than they used to have. So they want a very concentrated birding experience, a very focused birding experience. And they get that from an atlas protocol that they've got two hours to work in a, in a, in a, in a pentad. It's very clean cut. And so is the traveling to see rarities. They know exactly what they're after. Um, and success and failure can be easily defined. At the end of the day, they know what they've done and why they did it and whether they succeeded or not. And I guess there's also the challenge of almost this peer pressure thing of social media where, you know, there's in the past, there was no social media. So, you know, nowadays it's kind of like becomes a, a badge of honor when you see a new bird put the picture on Instagram or you complete a card. It becomes something that you almost can brag about. Where in the past was because there wasn't the social media emphasis, it was... It was more something that you celebrate yourself as opposed to something that you got to brag with the community about. Yeah, it becomes, you know, you almost worry that it just birds become another currency for people to compete with one another. And, you know, that's unfortunate. One doesn't like to see birding becoming that. But I think it, there is a danger of that, which before was less open communication. People didn't, birders weren't in contact with hundreds of other birders on a regular basis. It didn't really matter maybe what your life list was. But now everybody can know what everybody else's life list is and you know exactly where you rank. These sort of things were never compiled before, nor was it really possible to do so. The other big change we've seen is with digital cameras too. And I mean, I'm as bad as anybody. They're totally addictive. Everybody's out there taking photographs. You know, the binoculars go up less often than the cameras do these days when a bird is seen. And people are just taking a few photographs of a species and, you know, moving on to the next bird they can photograph. And it's almost it's like a hunting instinct. People are essentially the same reason why people used to shoot wild animals is the same reason why I think they're taking photographs. Of them. And I'm as bad as anybody. I'm totally addicted to it. And often asking myself, why am I compiling these tens of thousands of images of birds? I get to use them because I, well, I have been able to because I give a lot of talks and stuff. But otherwise, why are we compiling all these image after image after image? Been a big change. Digital cameras have allowed it. And, and, and in some ways, it's also when I, when, I, when I was a younger birder, there were like half a dozen really good professional photographers the Peter Staines, the Hugh Chittendons, the Nico Mybergs, people like that who, and they had to photograph at nests because that was the only way you could get close enough with the optics of those days to get good photographs at nests. Whereas now, Every Tom, Dick, and Harry and David Allen, including me, can all take very good photographs with the equipment that's available. So suddenly you've got a, a real kind of dumbing down. Everybody can now take fantastic photographs and Facebook is full of them. And you sort of went back to the old days where you didn't see as many images, but you maybe got a lot more out of the images you did see taken by other people. So as we as we start to wind down, uh, just as you look as we look at the next generation to come, the question I want to ask is how do you how accessible do you feel that careers in ornithological related fields are and do, do you think there's things we need to do to make it more accessible for people yeah you know i i think to make a you know i've often thought to myself and increasingly so in fact in the modern world to try and make money out of birds is becoming harder and harder to do whereas it's what you need to do is you need to have money and then you can do whatever birding you want to do. And that was also a bit of a worrying trend. It is in danger of becoming a hobby for elite, wealthy elite people, and harder for people without money to get into it because of the inherent costs of the equipment and the travel and the time you need to do it, which the middle class is struggling to find all those things, and so not being able to partake in the in the hobby the way they used to. So that will make it, that affects your accessibility. In terms of professional ornithology, it's a very much a niche area. 
you are going to have to be a scientific biologist going forward. The door for people like me to be able to get in without the requisite mathematical and, and, and science skills is now firmly closed. You're going to have to be a real biologist. And in many cases, those people will no longer be birders, as unrecognizable as birders. They will do no bird watching. They're just avian biologists. They're avian scientists with no real common ground with the birding community anymore. It's gone off in its own direction. Possibly one of the challenges also would be the social economic thing because, I mean, you know, when you rock up at a bird club, for example, everyone's got a decent pair of binoculars. Everyone's, most people have got a, a decent camera. So if you've got someone who arrives there who maybe doesn't have a pair of binoculars or a low-end pair of binoculars, it's almost like you don't fit in with, with other birders. And that, that even might be a bit of a hindrance for people from different social economic backgrounds to actually join the birding world, if you want to say, if you to say it that way. Well, you've got to say, look, you know, you've, got to have, you've got to have a car, you've got to have a pair of mm. Swarovskis or Zeiss binoculars, you've got to have a nice Swarovski telescope, and you need to have the fancy camera equipment, you know, the Canon or Nikon 500mm lenses, 600mm lenses. You're starting to talk tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of brands. Um, and that's uh, going to make it difficult for people from the vast majority of South Africa's socioeconomic levels to be able to enjoy birding. Um, and tour, tourism is the area where is the other growth area, you know, where, you know, the tour guiding business, which we're seeing um, at all levels. We've got community guides and we've got professional guides working with professional companies. Um, that's a whole new field as well. That certainly was a new field when I was young. We didn't have that largely because South Africa was closed off from international visitors because of the apartheid era. So that's all something I've seen happen in my lifetime, this development of burning tourism largely based on an overseas market. And that there's no reason why that can't progress and that should be developed as much as it can be yes certainly last question as you sit at the end of your career that you've been a you know been part of in in, in ornithology and that for many many years what legacy do you hope to leave i hope i've shared my passion for birds i hope i've been able to inspire some younger people i know there's some interns and people i've worked with in the past some of them have gone on to have successful careers in ornithology i hope i've I know I've shared time with them. I hope I've helped to inspire them. Um, I hope my writing has similarly inspired, particularly my popular writing on birds, which I've taken a great deal of pleasure from. Um, and then also I've been involved in lots of conservation fights. Some of them as an EIA consultant, sometimes as a professional ornithologist engaging with, you know, working in provincial conservation. Um, and also been brought in by organizations like BirdLife South Africa, often on conservation-related issues. So I hope I've been able to make a difference in some conservation issues or at least contribute to them. But it's given me a fantastic life. And, uh, you know, I would never regretted a minute of it. I, as I've said um, when I received an award recently, I just wish at my, now that I've just retired at 63 years old, I wish I could do it all again. Well, David, it's been fascinating to chat to you. I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I know the dogs are barking and saying it's time for us to finish, but thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And thank you for your the input you've had into the, the world of birding. I think just in behalf of all the birders that listen, we just want to say a big thank you. So thanks for your time and, and all the best for your retirement. Yeah, thank you very much. Nice chatting to you. It's been great. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books online store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. 
Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lesser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding. <laughs>